On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. A fairly varied selection of front pages um, on this morning's Sunday newspapers. A common theme is the photographs, which are generally of the Irish rugby team uh, celebrating their victory yesterday, 32 points to 19 over France in a rip-roaring occasion at the Aviva Stadium. But like I say, the stories are are pretty varied. Um, Let's start with the Sunday Independent. A state-backed construction business has been hit with a wave of senior staff and director resignations after the merchants of their companies made, quote, corrupt payments to ESB staff. Uh, in the High Court last week, it was revealed that a manager in Arkmount Construction recorded a conversation with an ESB engineer discussing how he would disguise a €10,000 payment by squeezing it, quote, through other contractors. Other payments to ESB staff were disguised as expense claims for subsistence or factory visits. Arkmount and its linked development firm Richmond Homes, uh, one of the country's biggest house builders, had suspended on, um, had suspended on, it's a typo in the, in the piece, had suspended full pay staff linked to the scandal last summer. Nine staff in the firms, which are ultimately owned by Asbestos Capital, which receives finance from Ireland's Sovereign Wealth Fund, have now resigned. Not all were implicated in making or approving payments. Uh, all of this is under the headline "Cash for ESB Connections." Uh, on the so few ballot pay, um, few bullet points rather, uh, which say that retiring ESB engineer wanted thirty-five thousand euro for a new car. Senior managers at top buildings firms knew of these alleged payments, and a judge has ruled that the Sunday Independent can report the case in full after there being some attempt during the week to try and have uh, report. Reporting restrictions implemented uh, on that case. Um, the f- front page of the Business Post. Pressure grows on the government over the political use of the Attorney General's office. There is growing pressure on the government to explain its use of the office of the Attorney General in response to political controversy over the legal strategy on nursing home charges. Opposition parties and legal experts have raised concerns that the use of the Attorney General, whose role is defined in the Constitution as an advisor to the government on matters of legal and le- law and legal opinion, in a political manner, has been a novel and potentially unwelcome expansion of the role. Mary Lou Macdonald, the Sinn Féin President, and other sh- opposition leaders have united in criticising the nature of Rossa Fanning's intervention in the controversy. The Labour Party is now set to bring forward a bill proposing reform of the office to increase transparency around the legal advice given to government. Um, there was a time when uh, the Attorneys General in this state would actually be members of the Doyle. So um, whether you can say that it's a, a new novel venture that uh, the advice is political, I don't know. But certainly there are some, some surprise about the political nature of the report published this week, uh, authored by Rossa Fanning. Also on the front page of the Business Post briefly, uh, revenue presses for gig economy workers to be taxed at source. Uh, they want delivery drivers and other workers in the gig economy uh, to be taxed at source as part of a crackdown on the practice. Uh, and also a Midlands-based development firm will commence work on a new €80 million Euro private hospital this year as part of its plans to develop a world-class medical campus in Tullamore. Um, front page of the Sunday Times, um, this main story there concerns a retired GAA star uh, who is now being investigated by the Gardaí for fraud and deception. The main story there concerns a man whose wife was diagnosed with cancer and he believes that he was targeted by this prominent GA star who claimed that he had the same form of the disease and needed money to travel to America for treatment. The couple from County Kilkenny agreed to lend €5,000 to this retired player, but they now believe that they were targeted because of the wife's life-threatening disease. Uh, he is both cunning and conniving, uh, said this person who spoke on condition of anonymity to the Sunday Times. He says, I was targeted and groomed after my wife was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. He approached me offering to support us, but soon asked for money. There was empathy and concern in his voice. He told me he had the same cancer as my wife and talked about how he had received revolutionary treatment in Seattle. He added, we don't believe any of it was true. Um, the couple, whose story is similar to other accounts provided to the Gardaí, are among a list of people cooperating with a fraud inquiry into allegations of deception by this sports personality. 
And also on the front page of the Sunday Times, uh, sanctions placed on the gang behind the HSE hack. Remember the, the HSE cyber attack in May of 2021? The Conti gang, which were responsible for installing that ransomware on the uh, HSE's IT system, uh, have now been subject to wide-ranging sanctions implemented on them uh, by the US and by British authorities. It's the first time that members of a private criminal gang of that sort have been subject to sanctions. Uh, and finally now, the Irish Mail on Sunday. Private nursing homes are threatening to evict vulnerable elderly people who have been forced into debt because they can no longer afford to pay exorbitant extra fees demanded for standard care. According to an investigation by the Irish Mail on Sunday, dozens of complaints about patients being charged extras for basic items and services have been made to the likes of HICWA, the Competition and Consumer Authority and Sage Advocacy, the independent agency which represents older people in care. An analysis of those complaints seen by the Mail on Sunday reveals cases where, for example, one patient was charged €1,600 a month, which is over three hundred euro more than the current average mortgage in rental fees for a medical grade air mattress and dressings for wounds another patient was charged 85 euro a month for four years to rent an air mattress that could have been bought outright for around 300 euro which meant they paid more than 4,000 euro for something that could have been bought for a fraction of the cost um, they revealed also that patients in private nursing homes are being charged every month for activities that they're not capable of participating in charges of up to 40 euro a week imposed on families for mittens to prevent residents with dementia from interfering with their own incontinence pads weekly fees of 50 euro for social activities during the pandemic when family members were not allowed to visit and fees imposed for the use of hoists to help frail people get out of their beds and for the use of chairs and exercise bikes and nursing homes also demanding buyout payments for thousands of euro if a family was to move the loved one to live in a care home closer to their relatives basically being charged a break clause uh, for ending their service that's all uh, outlined in some detail inside the mail on Sunday today uh, to join the studio to discuss what is in those papers by Gabby Gattisvitskita who's a political reporter at independent.ie and Rachel Iredale who is consulting director at RSM Ireland uh, you're both very welcome thank you very much for coming in um, one story which doesn't make it to the front pages of any of today's papers um, but my god there is some amount written <laughs> inside um, I don't even know how we're going to fit it into the 12 or 13 minutes that we might have allotted um, is the situation regarding Bertie Ahern his re-entry to Fianna Fáil and the prospect of him running for the presidency in 2025 or potentially earlier should the, the, the office arise um, Gabby I genuinely don't know where to start um, anything that jumps out for you in the acres and acres of coverage this morning I think Michael Brennan in the Business Post makes a good point saying how it was the best kept secret in politics that he had rejoined Fianna Fáil where he of course paid his 20 euro right before Christmas and there was no press release or anything issued now Fianna Fáil sort of saying well whenever somebody joins Fianna Fáil we don't usually issue a press <laughs> release about it but yeah. of course that somebody's not just anybody it is a former Taoiseach listen he's been welcomed back with open arms and I think that was clear uh, from speaking to anybody within the party this week um, you know Micheál Martin he was previously one to put pressure on him to go he was happy or to leave the party he was happy to have him back Leo Varadkar all, also a very strong critic of his um, and I think Bertie very much seemed defiant in, in that event that he attended on the Good Friday Agreement um, during the week in Dublin he sort of was asked you know do you have to rehabilitate perhaps your reputation he, you know totally dismissing that people are happy to see him back and I think he's happy to, to be back Um is he going to run in the presidential election versus Jerry Adams as Matt <laughs> Cooper suggests yeah we well, have yet, yet to be seen. <laughs> in one fell swoop there, Matt predicting who the candidates will be for two uh, of the major parties, let alone for one of them. Um, we'll get into the, the, the nitty gritty of how that might work. But first of all, Rachel, anything that jumps out for you today in the acres of coverage? I think my job in RSM is about, you know, synthesising acres and acres of evidence. There's okay. three th- key things for me, really, I think. Is Bertie going to be part of um, some sort of strategy to revitalise the party? So in 2024, okay. in the general election, there's going to be 
somewhere between 9 and 15 new seats. Fianna Fáil are likely to be a party in government, whether it's with, with Sinn Féin or whether it's still as part of the existing coalition. Secondly, does Bertie have a role to play in the peace process as we come up to anniversary celebrations? Mm. Um, he's got really good standing in the North with both Republicans and Loyalists. So the fact that he's been in the political wilderness for more than a decade and not really played a significant part in peace talks. He says he has, but I mean, we haven't heard a lot about it. Yeah. Very interesting. What I thought was fascinating yeah. was that the other evening when um, when Gabby's colleague Hugh O'Connell was the first person to report that Bertie Ahern had paid his fee and, and re- return, uh, it emerged then that Bertie Ahern was that evening in Brussels meeting the Northern Ireland Secretary of State, Chris Heaton-Harris. Uh, and you'd, okay, granted, listen, Chris Heaton-Harris is entitled to, to bend the ear of anyone yeah. uh, about trying to get a resolution to the current mm-hmm. logjam up there. But you do wonder exactly what is Bertie Ahern's standing to, to do that or, or exactly how did he manage to fall into that kind of freelance indeed, consultancy role? Indeed. I think the third element, though, is will he run for the presidency, as we've just heard? But it's going to spark some interesting debate about what the role of the presidency is about. Mm. So, yeah, Matt, so? Co- Matt Cooper has pitched um, Bertie Hearn against Jerry Adams. Mm. But in the Mail on Sunday, Mary Carr talks about him. Um, returning the presidency to an oasis of tranquility, impartiality impartiality and being inclusive that basically she thinks Bertie should just go and retire in the Phoenix Park. Because he would be unable to turn it into this oasis uh, of... Is that a way of saying anonymity? No, I don't think so. That the role of the president in Ireland shouldn't be about political grandstanding. You know, so we've got, we've had Mary Robinson, Mary McAleese, Michael D, all of whom have had their areas that... We need to return the presidency to mm. something that's impartial. And I think with the two candidates that we have as front runners, Hearn and Adams, it'd be mm. very difficult to do that. But uh, you can't see an independent going up against them. No, but in, in truth, I, I, I'm not sure if as a starting point, everyone would agree that the presidency should be this fairly anodyne or low profile or politically impartial mm. role, because there is a case to be made, maybe in the times that we're in, uh, the people are more comfortable with the, the president being a slightly more subtle activist. Um if it does come to a... Actually, no, let, let's park the presidency chat for a moment. Um, if the role might be for Fianna, for Bertie Ahern to lend his expertise to um, strengthening Fianna Fáil, firstly, we have to get over the fact that a couple of years ago, um, Bertie Ahern said that he didn't think much of Micheál Martin. It wouldn't be saying anything nice about him. Uh, that was at a private meeting to support a, a candidate in 2019, or in 2014, which um, Micheál Martin then had to sort of shrug off as being irrelevant because um, he was out of the party. Um, what role do you think Gabby could... Bertie Hearn have in offering some kind of strategic advice to Fianna Fáil about getting back to the glory days of old? Yes, so Micheál Martin of course has the Foreign Affairs Department now and in fairness you know, the next couple of months are going to be crucial for that in, in terms of the protocol and I think Bertie, you know, could very well advise Micheál um, on what the next steps could be. You know, I think I think, I think, think Micheál Martin is seen as a diplomat and I think they definitely like him up the north better than they likely of Radker. But, you know, perhaps it's good to kind of have him even maybe not around the table for talks, but maybe somewhere in the room. Stephen yeah. standing behind the table, for example, just to see, OK, well, here's somebody who's contributed very positively in the past. Maybe we have a role from. Of course, then we have all this talk about Fianna Fáil and its identity and how the party doesn't know what its identity is. Mm-hmm. It's sort of trying to figure out the, the next steps. Perhaps there is a role for him there. Um, Aoife Moore and Sharon McGowan writing in the Sunday Times of all the seats that could be potentially lost in the next election mm. and they've sort of said that you know, there's three you know cabinet ministers that potentially are vulnerable Dara O'Brien Stephen Donnelly and Charlie McConaughey. so could you bring Bertie um, into a more of a strategic play of you know what is the future of Fianna Fáil what 
perhaps what are the areas that should be trying to scope into. But also, as much of all the good that Bertie Ahern has done, he's also, you know, the Mahan Tribunal did not paint him in a positive light yeah. at all. Mm. And so I think the challenge there for Fianna Fáil is going to be striking a balance, maybe getting his advice and his insight. But also, I don't know if it's it will be good for them to be seen to be relying on him too heavily if you're talking about the future of the party. Yeah, well, this is why I think if it came to a presidential election, Rachel, that I, I don't think Bertie Ahern would have a very easy time of it at all. Mm. So much so that I, I don't know if it would even warrant him trying to run for the office if it was something that he'd be up for. Um, because people will continually, as I'm about to do right now, go back to a statement released by the Fianna Fáil leader, Micheál Martin, in 2012, uh, saying that Bertie Ahern gave a significant amount of evidence to the tribunal, which in the opinion of the tribunal was untrue, that it would be a matter of profound personal and professional regret to see confirmed in the report the extent to which Bertie Hearn fell short of the standard of personal behaviour expected of the holders of high office. And then to have the leader of that party then trying to support Bertie Hearn towards the presidency. And there being so many questions about the origin of payments or lodgement into his bank accounts over time, that it would just be... Far I mean, too personal, far too vicious, wasn't it's it? It's bizarre. And he famously didn't have bank accounts mm. as finance minister. And I think Leo Varadkar said the gutter was the best place for him. But I think identity politics comes into play now. He very much identifies Bertie Ahern as both a Republican and a socialist. And that's perhaps the direction of travel that the party needs to take now mm. in the coming months. So do you think he could end up being a, a presidential candidate almost to be this kind of flag bearer of where the party is going? A flag bearer exactly of where the party is going to bring people with the party as they move into campaigning I think over the coming okay. months is so going ir- to be important so making ir- that separation with Fine Gael is key But to, to, to carry that flag as a presidential candidate or merely just as a sort of a public Fianna Fáil ambassador at large I think it's very difficult to see who might go up against him you see, that's that's the the issue. Sherry Until Adams. you can give yeah, me well, some substitutes. <laughs> well, well, I mean, who, who might go up against him for, for the for the party's candidacy other than Micheál Martin himself? I don't know if there'd be too many other people who'd be curious. His up. popularity is high. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and do do bear in mind that um, it is the last time the Fianna Fáil formally ran a candidate. I think for the presidency was Brian Lennon. Well, Mary McAleese in, Mary, in, okay. in, yeah. in 97. Uh, before that, Brian Lennon in 1990 and Bertie Hearn was the director of yes, elections. Indeed. So Bertie will, will fully remember how vicious presidential elections can be and, and they'll only become more he, vicious in the meantime. He said that was the most difficult campaign he ever ran, I think, even having previously won three electoral campaigns. Yeah, so mm-hmm. um, let, let's see how he feels about that. Um, I also, can I do a small ahead. point? I think there's also a lot of uh, the issues that we're seeing now with health and housing, for example. I mean, Sinn Féin have very, they're very successful in putting forward this narrative of this is Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael's fault. And if you bring a forward candidate for a presidency who's, you know, not been cast in a very positive light in the mm. past, to put it mildly, and you put him forward for the presidency, I mean, there's going to be elements of the public that are going to say, like, Fianna Fáil has taken us for fools here. Because here is somebody who, you know, came out so negative from, from the, the, the tribunal and they're now saying, we want this man in the Oris when... Somebody who's mm. in there now, Michael De Higgins, is extremely popular with the public, and I don't know if yeah. Bertie Hearn has the same level of popularity. Of course, well, we don't know whether Sinn Fein might put forward Jerry Adams as their candidate. He would seem to be the obvious front-running choice, but we don't know whether Jerry Adams would be up for it or whether the party would like to to run him. Um, it does bring up the the possible prospect um, of if there was a campaign in twenty twenty five and Bertie Hearn and Jerry Adams were among the candidates, that you would almost have it framed as if, well, you need to have a president there who could be trusted by the other community in the event of Ireland suddenly finding itself united under their tenure. Which is not unthinkable because if you're having a president who takes office in late 2025, you could have a prospect of there being a unity referendum by 2032 or 2039 
and then going, well, what would be the use of, or what would be the advantages of having a certain president in office to guide us through a very traumatic time of of reunification and all that? See, I think you're overestimating the uh, variables <laughs> like trust and popularity. <laughs> yeah. In a general election, everybody has a vote. Everybody's vote is equal. And what we've seen in British politics is the role, the cult of celebrity can be really important. Mm. No matter how bad your past is, no matter how dreadful the things that you may have done, you know, we've seen with some British politicians, the yeah. the cult of celebrity that they have cultivated has actually increased uh, the awareness of mm. the general pop- uh, population about them. And that might be the thing. The political landscape in terms of that has changed. Mm. Uh, do you think, Gabby, that a lot of this, maybe we are overthinking it, maybe, uh, and it doesn't help that Bertie Hearn consistently refuses uh, to rule himself out mm. of a contest in 2025, but that... First and foremost, it's merely a case of wanting to get over the awkwardness of celebrating the Silver Jubilee of the Good Friday Agreement and not having the main architect of it somewhat outside the fold, that maybe it's just more useful for everyone that Bertie Hearn has a political vehicle to hitch onto for the, for the time being. So uh, sev- several Fianna Fáil TDs this week made effort to say we should be we should you know celebrate the, the positive aspects of our past and be more proud of our republicanism. You know, Jim mm. McCallaghan was one of those to make those points. Yeah, of course, the the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement is fast approaching. And I think, you know, with all that's going on up up the north, you know, of course, that deadline for an election has been extended now again. So the issue is going to keep rumbling on. I think he's he's a good player to have on back on the Fianna Fáil side. He, you know, he was like, I think, also called in one of the papers, a soldier without a uniform. <laughs> you know, he's still very much, he was like, he never left Fianna Fáil, yeah. really. He's just now yeah. paid his 20 He might say the party left him. That, yeah. That's yeah. the only difference. The king is back. Yeah. Um, yeah. So look, I think I think it's interesting to see where it goes. Is he going to go for president? I think he's going to be in for a very hard time if he does go. I think if he does go against Jerry Adams, it'll probably be the best presidential campaign ever. <laughs> well, be- best by way of sort of get out the popcorn. It's like the, 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 the yes. Super Bowl of, of presidential elections. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think it'll be very difficult because the very first time that Bertie Hearn does an interview as candidate, mm-hmm. he's going to be asked again about the tribunal findings and the source of donations to his or the lodgements to his bank account and I think he's going to find that very difficult to have reanimated. Um, in the meantime, uh, Bertie Hearn, by the way, is a central figure um, in a podcast series to be launched here by News Talk very soon. As I remember, it's Bertie Hearn and the Good Friday Agreement, which involves uh, extensive interviews with many of the people who played key roles behind the scenes in the formation of that landmark agreement um, on Good Friday in 1998. That is coming very soon uh, to News Talk, uh, Newstalk.com and of course the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. So you get that anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, just as a closing thought I don't know if there is a huge advantage to either Bertie Hearn or Fianna Fáil to having him back around to celebrate the Silver Jubilee of an agreement which many people are now seeing as not really up to scratch that it was great for for achieving what it did in ending three generations of armed conflict and bringing peace and some sense of, of political stability but that it's not really you know, it's not as successful as we might like to think it is, Rachel. And I don't know whether it's kind of I think merits it's been, the touting that it might get. It's more enduring than many other uh, conflict resolution agreements, well, I think. And we need mm. to celebrate that. And uh, whilst things are precarious, um, it still stands. Uh, so I would find virtue in celebrating it. Yeah, uh, sure, no, no doubt we'll be discussing more about that in the weeks to come. 
Just turning 11.27 this morning on On The Record. Gavin Riley with you until one o'clock this lunchtime on News Talk. 53106 is the number for your texts. Um, it is estimated now that the number of people who may have died as a result of the earthquake that struck last Monday morning in Turkey and Syria could potentially surpass 50,000. As it stands right now, the death toll is uh, somewhere approaching around 28,000, but it is estimated by the UN relief chief, Martin Griffiths, that the overall number could end up being close to double that amount. Among those who have died so far are 28 workers for the Irish Relief Agency Goal, 26 on the Syrian side of the border and as of this morning unfortunately a second fatality on the Turkish side of the border among Goal staff. Uh, Derek O'Rourke is a Regional Security Advisor for Goal in the Middle East. Um, Derek, thank you for joining us today. Uh, our sincere apologies and condolences um, on the circumstances that we have to talk to you and on the loss of so many colleagues. Um, you might start by bringing us up to speed on exactly what Goal has been doing in the seven days since that earthquake struck on Monday morning. Yeah, so 26 of them um, were Syrian on the Syrian side of the border and two were are Turkish on the Turkish side of the border. So on the Syrian side, they would have been doing a whole range of different things. Some of them were in programs, teams, shelter, markets, bakeries, water, food. Um, some of them were in, in administration or, or, or operations roles. Um, on the Turkish side, again, there would, could have been programs or operations uh, logistics. So, so yeah, they were doing a whole range of different things um, for for the goal programs in in Syria and Turkey. There have obviously been uh, a lot of humanitarian reasons to have an operation in Syria for the last ten or twelve years. Um, how many bodies would you have had permanently on the ground in advance of what's happened in the last week there, anyway? Yeah, well, across the northern Syria programs, um, we've got nine hundred and fifty program staff and and another hundred uh, or so contracted drivers. So that's well over a thousand. And uh, in Turkey, over 250 staff. So it's a very, very large number um, of staff um, that we've got there. Um, in, on the Syrian side, Gavin, they were responding to the to the fallout of the conflict over the last more than a decade. And on the Turkish side, they were um, responding to the uh, Syrian refugee crisis in Turkey. How difficult is it to try and offer any humanitarian response to an area which, by its definition now, is so difficult to be able to bring any aid into? Yeah, so so before the earthquake, getting aid into northwest Syria um, was always a challenge. It has always been a challenge over the years, a challenge that we've become very good at um, managing um, through experience, through uh, expertise, uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, it's always been a political hot potato as well. As you know, it comes up in the UN Security Council at least once a year, sometimes uh, once every six months. Um, Ireland was very um, crucial in getting getting um, the cross border resolution across the line uh, during the two year a couple of times during the two years of Ireland's um, seat on the Security Council. So so it's a political issue. There's only one sh- um, crossing into into Idlib, uh, and there's a couple of crossings into northern Aleppo. So we we've only a few crossings that we can use, um, and then getting 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 stuff across. Is can be can be slow, and then when you factor in damages to roads, um, massive uh, breakup of the uh, supply chain infrastructure um, in Turkey, um, you know all of our fuel for northwest Syria, all of our uh, flour for our bakeries in northwest Syria, not a lot of the food that we buy for our for for the communities in northwest Syria. You know we source it in Turkey and we bring it across the border, so it's a it's a 
But what was always a challenge over the last 10 years or so has become even more so now. Mm, we're trying o- to get gri- a grip of that. I, c- I can only manage. Can you even just give us some insight into how you, you improvise and how you try to get things to, to areas when they're so now cut off with, with that loss of infrastructure? Yeah, well, um, we started responding in Syria on Tuesday. Um, we've got a shelter programme, which, you know, involves construction work. Um, and so do- those guys, those engineers... We're able to start responding with our contracted machinery to, to do search and rescue, something that they haven't done before. Um, we had our bakeries back up and running on Thursday because we had flour and yeast already in, in stock in Syria, pre, you know, um, in, in warehouses. Uh, so we have to think about how we get more flour and yeast. Um, we've been assessing what damage has been done to the flour suppliers in Turkey, their factories, their mills, their supply chain, their transport systems etc and etc um and you know we've just been uh, our biggest resources are t- is our teams our biggest resources is the uh, 1000 plus staff on the turkey uh, on the syrian side and the 250 plus on the turkey side so so accounting for all of them finding out if they've got shelter what's happened to their families are they okay what do they need you know and then and then when are you ready to get back to work and you know Everyone, every one of my colleagues in Syria and Turkey is is ready to fight, ready to get back to what we're doing, which is, which is, you know, helping the communities that they're actually from. You know, all, all those people, all those men and women that work for Goal in northern Syria are from from the area. They, they help their own communities. Um, you you just know, said, so they're mad keen to get back to do that. Sure. Um, you just said one thing in passing there which really struck me, the idea that they've been um, involved in search and rescue uh, at the start of the week, mm. which is something that they never would have been involved in before. And you've outlined what their, their ordinary day duties would be. So I'd imagine it must be so difficult for them doing a particular line of humanitarian crisis work that they've never done before, while at the same time being worried about the welfare of their own colleagues. And then, of course, at the same time, having suffered maybe some personal loss as well, if their own extended families or if their own homes have also been damaged by all of this. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, can, I can really feel for them because, you know, they pulled out some of our own. Actually, they rescued some of our own, which is, you know, heartening. But heartbreaking that they, they that they recovered bodies of some of the some of their own colleagues. Um, they you know they recovered a four year old girl who was alive and and we got her to hospital but she sadly didn't make it didn't survive. Um, you know so that that they've never experienced anything like that before. They were used to reconstruction, you know, uh, bombed out buildings, transforming them into into uh, safe safe buildings for for for. Um, for displaced people, for people who, who who don't have anywhere else to go, and 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 now they were involved in um, in clearing out rubble and trying to uh, rescue rescue and recover, um, you know, community members, and and then for them to find their own staff as well, their mm-hmm. own colleagues. I mean, should I say? Um, Derek, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us uh, this morning on the record. That's Derek O'Rourke, who's a regional security advisor for Goal um, in the Middle East. Um, by far, the um, simplest way to donate to Goal, or indeed to all of the other um, Irish charities that are on the ground trying to help out in the aftermath of that awful earthquake, is through the Irish Emergency Alliance. Um, you can donate um, either at their website, which is irishemergencyalliance.org, um, or at Goal's own website, which is goal.ie, um, or you can dial the free phone number 1 800 939 979. That's again 1 800 
0800-939-979 to donate what you can to that coalition of aid bodies that are trying to help people on the ground in Turkey and Syria. Um, Rachel Iredale and Gabby Gedevitskita were listening to that. They're here to review what's in the Sunday papers. Um, there is understandably quite a lot written in the papers about the aftermath of that earthquake last Monday morning. Rachel, what have you picked out? Um, as, as the tragedy is still unfolding and it's dreadful, the images that we're seeing, um, quite a few of the papers have uncovered the the stories beneath this. So the uh, Sunday Independent talks about some families being pulled from the rubble. Uh, the Sunday Times talks about a family where one sister died and the other was alive. But the story I've chosen to focus on comes from the Business Post. It's Vincent Boland and he's taken an angle on the political consequences of this earthquake. Okay. Um, for Turkey, uh, 1923 was the year which the Turkish Republic was established. So we were going to have in Turkey a hundred years celebration of that republic. It was supposed to be a year of celebration. And I think now the entire year will be filled with sadness and Mm. probably tinged with um, recrimination as well. The Turkish president actually uh, was elected on the back of an earthquake. um, But the political consequences of uh, what is likely to happen is going to be very, very difficult. They're due an election in May of this year. But I think the socioeconomic implications in terms of um, the places that have been affected in Syria, for example, Aleppo, which was devastated by a decade of civil war now, is is devastated anew. But a lot of the, uh, the region where the earthquakes struck really is Turkey's most fertile land, you know, so the economic consequences of some of that is going to be very, very difficult. And I think there is also, as as Vincent Boland has pointed out, an ethnic dimension to this. Many of the people who have been affected are Kurdish. um, So the single largest ethnic group worldwide who don't uh, own a state. So the displacement and the effect on those minorities is going to be very, very difficult. So I think the tragedy is, is, the, you know, the implications of it will mm. will run and run. Um, I know um, there will be some unease, uh, and I, I, I say this very carefully because I, I don't want it at all to sound like it's it's kind of exploitative. But um, in the aftermath of this, of course, um, President Erdogan declared a ninety day uh, period of emergency um, nationwide across all of Turkey. And although, of course, that is completely warranted given the humanitarian situation that is there right now, um, that that was previously done in the aftermath of the attempted coup, or what was said to have been an attempted coup against President Erdogan in recent years. And I know that there is some concern among uh, political rivals in Turkey that the state of emergency may be exploited for political ends. But of course, we have to presume that everyone is acting in good faith, given the general extent of what's there. Um, Gabby, you've been looking at what's in the papers as well, but you've you've cast your eye a little further afield than what's just in print today in Ireland this Sunday morning. Yes. So the New York Times had an interesting story um that over 100 uh, contractors had been detained um, across Turkey. And I suppose the Turkish Justice Ministry um, ordered officials in 10 provinces to set up what they call earthquake, earthquake crimes investigation units. And I suppose officials are basically blaming over 100 builders for saying, look, you didn't obey by the building regulations and that's why some of these buildings collapsed with our citizens in them. Okay, so the contention being that if had they been built to code, that they would have withstood any shock. Yes. So, okay. for example, um, across the earthquake zone, residents expressed their outrage at what they contended were corrupt builders who cut corners to fatten their profits, and the government's granting of amnesties to builders who put up apartment complexes that failed to meet the new code. So, for example, in Antakya, residents pointed to shoddy workmanship in a newly built luxury building of fourteen floors with some nineteen apartments, ninety apartments that had collapsed in on itself. So. Even 
even though the earthquake happened, you know, it's only, I suppose it's been a story for mm. about a week, you know, it has, it's only been a couple of days, really. I think it's interesting how quickly that move is there to, you know, to target those contractors and to say, well, you've actually failed those citizens. You are responsible for their deaths. You didn't put in place all of the checks and balances that you were supposed to to keep them safe. And so they've been now detained. Yeah, that's, it's, it's very striking how quickly they seem to have acted mm. because you, you would think, somewhat understandably, that the first response, Rachel, would be on the humanitarian situation. Mm. But evidently, no doubt, when you are at less of a remove yeah. and you're on the ground, you can understand as well yeah. that there is political and public anger about I, all of this I was as well. listening to a professor of planning to, and I've worked in construction, so I'm vaguely interested in this, but they talk about the codes of practice in Turkey are excellent for building. They've been reviewed about five times in the past two decades. So on paper, what needs to be done is um, it's already there, but it's exactly that. It's been mm-hmm. shoddy practices by um, contractors trying to get away with things. The challenge is an earthquake of this magnitude only hits every few hundred years. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going to be something that countries all over the world are going to have to think about. How much investment do you make in retrofitting old buildings so that they're you improve the capacity of the building to withstand something like mm. this in the future because you don't really know if that strategy has been uh, effective. From an engineering perspective, maybe I'm asking you to go too deep into your, your experience. Here, but like, is it is it a feasible thing to do to retroactively yes, refit a building to make yeah. it more more uh, resilient? Yes, old buildings should be retrofitted in two ways. One in countries where you might be at risk of you know a natural disaster like an earthquake, but also to make them more sustainable. So somewhere like Ireland should be looking at retrofitting to improve the you know the energy capacity mm. of a building. Mm. So that's the extent of my engineering knowledge, okay. Gavin. So shall we stop there? Okay, yeah, well, let's 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 do indeed uh, draw under there. Uh, people have been asking for again that number for the Irish Emergency Alliance. It's one eight hundred nine three nine nine seven nine. That's one eight hundred nine three nine nine seven nine. A free phone number. You can also donate at irishemergencyalliance.org. That's all one word: irishemergencyalliance.org. Uh, and Gold's own website, of course, is gold.ie. Still joined in the studio by Rachel Iredale and Gabby Agadavitskita to go through some of the stories making the news uh, this Sunday morning. Um, a fascinating piece. It's across a few of the papers, Gabby, but particularly on page four of the Business Post uh, this Sunday morning, um, which might give you and I and the other thousand odd people who go to Leinster House for our work <laughs> some calls to rethink exactly what we do in the corridors, given the apparently well-grounded concern that the CCTV cameras in Leinster House could be reporting back to China. Do tell. Yes. So Big Brother is watching, apparently, all of us in Leinster House. Or whatever the Chinese is for Big Brother. (laughs) (laughs) Big Brother is in China. So the government is being urged to remove these Chinese-made surveillance cameras from the Dáil and Shannon on national security human rights grounds. So these cameras are made by Hikvision, which is a Chinese supplier of surveillance equipment. And that's installed both inside and outside the Oireachtas. And some of the countries that have already banned or removed their Hikvision uh, surveillance include the UK and Denmark. So it's not like this is being plucked out of thin air. It has mm. happened in other countries. Um, so the US put the company on its black trade list in 2019. And now there are calls to get rid of these cameras. Uh, Catherine Murphy, who's the co-leader of Social Democrats, she's saying, you know, Ireland, we're sort of behind the times in detecting these potential risks um, as to as to what could be you know, is there something that's being transmitted back to somebody mm. else? Something that's being captured on camera um, and we're just not aware of it. The Irish Council of Civil Liberties also uh, formally raised uh, the use of that technology, um, you know, sort of raising their own concerns. And it's not really clear, you know, if if the Oireachtas or if the Office of the Public Works is taking any advice on this or if they are re-examining the use of those cameras. But we were speaking just during the ad break, like there are a lot of people that come in and out of 
just Leinster House every single yeah. day. Mm. Um, you know, so of course, if you're a member, you you do have permission to bring in um, whatever guests you may like. They may be constituents, they may be your own staff. Um, of course, members also have their own you know political staff that come in. You have your advisors that come in. You have, of course, journalists. So and also former members also are granted access, yeah. and they can bring in somebody as well if they like. So there are there is a, a lot of footfall throughout the the corridors of Leinster House every single day, and we don't really know what comes in and out. There are some corridors that, you know, are tucked away that nobody, maybe people wouldn't walk them every single day. They wouldn't be the main ones. Maybe there is stuff that's going on there that mm. the Chinese are keeping an eye on. Well, the, the, I tweeted this story last night when the Business Post uh, sent a push alert about it first and the universal sentiment of the replies that I got, Rachel, was, uh, sure, what interest would the Chinese have in us? Which... I thought was maybe a little naive given that, okay, you might say, sure, we're only a little fringe Western European government. But when we're also the government that's responsible for the regulation of most of big tech, uh, most of big tech's users outside of North America, (laughs) that maybe if you were minded to, there'd be some interest in keeping an eye on what could be done. Although at the same time, I wonder, and this is a second question, so maybe I'm asking you to address both at once. (laughs) Is it a touch fanciful to think that a foreign government or some agents of a foreign state would have... Uh, no. Managed to manufacture the ability to snoop on the corridors of power. N- not at all. To, for it's me, not this was the big issue of the week in all the papers in the run up to today. Uh, in that foreign governments, Chinese and Russian governments, mm. are interested in what's happening. So, I've just but usually fin- it's balloons, though. Possibly, yeah. um, RSM's just finished an evaluation for the British government on cyber security. But there's been four main stories this week around cyber. So we've got the Leinster House cameras. We've mm. also had the kind of the drones in Dublin Airport. Who's controlling those? We've also had. Do you think the- it might be in it. Sorry, I don't mean to, to surmise or to, to comment on an act of criminal investigation, but that there, there might be reason for foreign intelligence to be involved in that? But balloons, drones, anything floating over, you know, spaces. Then we've also had the hacking by the Russian group Black Cat of um, Monster Technological University. Mm. And then the most interesting cyber story has been chat GPT. And, you know, that's only really been live for a couple of weeks, but Mm. already we're hearing about how it's going to transform huge areas of our life from students writing essays in universities yeah. to journalists writing news stories <laughs> to uh, I saw somebody to, on Twitter yeah. talking about they uh, write for a leading British soap opera and then one of the upcoming episodes now has been totally written by artificial intelligence. Really? US government has just invest, or invested I think something like 29 billion in pursuing mm. this so the days of Google may be yeah. gone. You just get a better answer out of um, yeah, chat GPT. There, there is, we, we discussed it a bit at length a couple of weeks ago in the programme because there was some concern in, in the papers about what it might mean for academia and the fact that chat GPT outputs unique mm. output every time. So if you say, mm. write me a thousand words about um, the size of parliaments, for example, mm. which is something we're going to be discussing later in the programme, that it will give you different sequences of words, which makes it very difficult then to detect backwards yeah. as being uh, the work of a machine. Um, but Colin is pointing out that they can also be very headstrong in that if you um, tell chat GPT that it's got the wrong answer, even if it's correct, then, for example, it will go back and then react and say, oh, oh, very sorry, you're right. Or you can ask it a leading question like, why is a pair of scissors heavier than an elephant? And it will presume that you mean the question in good faith and try to give you an answer, even though the... The premise is both. I mean, the interesting thing currently, ChatGPT is regurgitating information on the internet that we as human beings have inputted, you know, data and information, views, things like that. That doesn't care about, you know, how objective it's being. But in the future, it will be churning back to us better answers. It doesn't really care about misinformation or disinformation. It will be just the most prominent information. And some of that new information in subsequent years will also be generated by AI. Yeah. So we're in a whole different world. I've 
um, attached to a university actually and have spent decades trying to keep one step ahead of uh, students with a whole load of software that we employ to detect plagiarism and things like that. Mm. Uh, and it only detects it if you've got, you know, inverted commas and quotes and that you can actually detect what a re- yeah. what is a reference and what is somebody else plagiarizing ideas. Yeah. So, as a as a sign of, by the way, of how much ChatGPT is improving, uh, I have just logged on while you were giving your answer there and logged on and asked it, why is a teaspoon heavier than an elephant? Having been told previously that it would try to justify your incorrect right. premise and it's replied to say I'm sorry but that statement is incorrect a teaspoon <laughs> is much lighter than an elephant an elephant can weigh thousands of pounds while a teaspoon typically weighs only a few grams well that told you <laughs> it, it didn't adjust uh, also by the way and I, I hope this works because if it doesn't this is going to be terrible radio this is the Chinese for Big Brother there you go uh, I really hope that worked or else that was just a really awkward silence um, a few other bits and, uh, bits and pieces um, you mentioned Rachel the um, the cyber attack on MTU Cork formerly yeah. Cork Institute of Technology um, and some of the newspaper coverage that there's been around that that jumped out for you this yeah, morning so that's been interesting so um, at first glance you might think God what, what sort of data you know might a university uh, hold you know how did Gavin do in module one of his essay you know did he get mm. a C or did he get an Give A me spoiler, but actually, but actually <laughs> the things with university and technological colleges is there's huge numbers of people using huge amounts of information on large numbers of devices. Mm. So uh, the entire system has been hacked. The National Centre for Cybersecurity is dealing with it. But interestingly, there's been a High Court injunction um, this week about preventing the publication okay. of that data. Actually, I wasn't aware of that bit, but that does have but echoes of the HSE. It's an ex-party injunction in that only one of the parties was in the High Court. Well, of course, yes, because you, you hardly expect the yeah. cyber attackers to show up yeah. with a senior counsel yeah. to say, well, actually, no, I think you should be allowed to I think report all of our stuff. the thing is, when it comes to cybersecurity, Ireland is behind the curve and we need to acknowledge that. So there is a bill passing through the Senate on uh, communications and regulation, but I think we're just going to be hearing more and more stories mm. around cybersecurity and what we need to do and invest in that. Yeah, um, somebody texted in to remind us that there was that situation of a, uh, a Chinese police service station which had been established in the north side of Dublin city centre, uh, which had been spotted um, in the autumn and the Department of Foreign Affairs got in touch with the Chinese embassy uh, telling them to close that. So this, this texter is surmising that maybe there is is a, a common theme of China being slightly more interested in the affairs of Ireland and the Irish government and the Irish state uh, than we might let on. Um, the This idea of um, sanctions being placed on the gang behind the HSE attack, uh, Gary, that's something which is mentioned on the front page of the, the Sunday Times. Uh, it seems to be a fairly novel territory that we're, we're getting into, that you'd actually have sanctions being placed on private non-state actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who don't obviously... Co- cooperate very much either I mean if you're going to the High Court as Rachel said they're, they're not going to rock up and fight their own <laughs> yeah, case yeah. so yeah John Mooney's reporting that these wide ranging sanctions have been imposed on the leaders of the Russian gang that carried out the 2021 ransomware attack on the HSE which if you remember came sort of right in the middle of really harsh uh, lockdown restrictions and we were battling COVID very much so and like yeah. the HSE had a lot of things going mm. on and it came at the worst possible time um, I think it demanded wasn't it like three bitcoin or something for that information that it that it hacked. Um, so the cyber attack by the contact group damaged uh, the HSC's IT systems and cost them 100 million and thousands of hospital appointments had to be cancelled. I think it's positive to see that there's sanctions placed on them, whether they do anything or not, you know, is a, is a different story. But there is some sort of action that people aren't just coming in. They're hacking. And, and by the way, these hackers, like, you know, needless to say, they're extremely intelligent and they mm. hide their digital footprint. So you cannot... Like tracking them down is extremely difficult, but if there is a way to to target them and to, I suppose, make their lives a little bit harder for the damage they have caused, it's it's only a positive thing. I think just to say very quickly on. Mm. 
if your data has been extracted and, and, and somebody's publishing or threatening to publish it um, and suddenly you open up, you know, whatever, wherever it is published online and that's all your bank information is there, your name, your address, your phone number. Yeah. I think there's also almost a little bit of... Um, if, if you are giving, you know, your personal information over, I think you almost nearly have to accept, OK, would I be OK with any of this if it leaked? But of course, so much of what we do now every single day is mm. online. If you're buying concert tickets, you're putting yeah. in sensitive but, but bank it's information. Also, it's a very difficult. I mean, I, I completely take the point. But uh, like when you're dealing with an entity like the HSE and you've been handing over private information like, you know, your medical history or yeah. PPS numbers or dates of birth or anything else like that as well you, you you would be entitled to do that in good faith without presuming that it was going to end up splashed in some dark of course, corner of the yeah. internet um, Rachel is there if you're placing sanctions on a gang like Conti um, given that they generally sort of tend to inhabit the underworld anyway you could sort of argue that it's I hate using the phrase, but it's it's kind of virtue signaling. It's gesture politics because if these are people who manage to live in criminal underworld anyway, then sanctioning them from the use of formalised Western bank accounts or the likes isn't going to do much. They're no. not going to care. But I think it's the publicly available information. So if we think about information that the HSE might have on you in terms of illnesses and things like that, there's a piece in the paper today about the bill about cancer survivors wanting the right to be forgotten. Yeah, it's very interesting if an um, uh, insurance company, for example, knows if if you've had a cancer diagnosis or if you're going for HIV tests yeah. or, you know, if you've had an STD, mm. all of those sorts of things, because that affects the risk profile of what they're prepared to do. You might argue employers would be interested to see if you're predisposed to a heart attack, for example, mm. are they going to invest in you? So you just don't know the consequences of, I don't think the hackers care about how that data is used. It's the making it public, the distributing and, you know, getting the money back for that. That's their objective. But I don't think they're very pushed on the money because certainly we have never, like the HSE never paid them those three Bitcoin. Mm. I don't think um, the University of Munster is going to pay them either. So like, what is their ultimate goal here? Like, are they looking to just cause a little bit of anarchy, watch the world burn? Are Mm. they selling your data to somebody Mm. and getting money in return for it? Because the (laughs) ransom doesn't seem to be... They're not going to get no. it, really. Well, it probably depends on how sophisticated the, the entity is because I remember after the HSE was attacked finding the, the page where Conti basically posts the stuff that they threaten to release mm. if the ransom mm. isn't paid. And there was any manner of businesses large and small. I remember there was a chain of, of Mid-Eastern butchers somewhere in like the in East Anglia in, in Britain and this butcher's IT system had been hacked and you weren't going to get very much by, mm. by way of concrete information mm. out of them. But I think it was just a way of saying, right, well, it doesn't matter how sophisticated you are. If you see this and you panic and you think that paying us off is the right thing to do, mm. then, it, then it's easy money. And um, I do see some British uh, reporting this morning to the effect um, that there have been 104 uh, victims in the UK of the Conti strain of ransomware who between them paid £10 million. Uh, so it's... it's <laughs> I don't mean to legitimize it, but it's, it's, it's easy work if you can <laughs> yeah, get it. Yeah. 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 Um, it's the challenge of doing it, I think, is the key thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, finally, before I, I let you both go, and I'm going to just give you 30 seconds on each of this because I'm going to move on, but we're going to be discussing this a little bit more in detail in the second hour of the show. Um, do you think that we should create the positions for 12 more TDs, which is going to be necessitated by the revision of doll boundaries later this year. I'm the silence suggests you, I mean, you, you don't have, you don't a, have a profound opinion either way. A big sigh on that and, okay. and point <laughs> your why, listeners. Why are you sighing? Why are you sighing? Point your listeners to a fascinating piece what by Luke O'Neill in the Sunday Independent <laughs> about cyclic sighing and that we could all improve our heart health and our lower our 
blood pressure if we sighed more. So if you we sighed inhale more. and okay. then exhale for right. longer. So that's, I have no opinion on the TDs, but I want to do more sighing. how this goes then. Uh, Rachel Iredale, who's a... <sighs> Consulting Director at RSM <laughs> Ireland and Gabby Gedefitskita who is <sighs> political reporter this year. I don't think it's working uh, at Irish Independent uh, thank you both very much for joining us in the studio On the Record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11 Brought to you by PwC Great minds think unalike Different skill sets diverse opinions it all adds up to the new equation On News Talk